Welcome to another episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast, where we focus on building better businesses. I believe in order to be the best leader that you can be, you must be willing to be the first follower and have a servant mentality when you're in a leadership position. If you want to be the best leader that you possibly can be, be sure to stay tuned and listen to industry leaders and hear how they built winning cultures in their own businesses. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Huzar, and he's the CEO of VetCore and Team VetCore. We're going to talk about how he is helping bring lessons from the battlefield to the boardroom through his organization. Before we begin, I'll remind you this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, or content creator that wants to create tactical content that delivers, head over to nightly.productions and find out how we can help you create that content. Paul, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate you doing this and, and really appreciate in general you doing this topic and, and particularly helping veterans. Man, I absolutely love it. And the audience will know we've had a couple of veterans on here and there, and they always seem to be really good conversations because I kind of like how we chopped it up before recording. We can always just bullshit in a different way. So I think this will be a really fun conversation. And I definitely want to give the audience an opportunity to know a little bit about you where they can laugh with me about you being a West Point graduate and a uh, retired army officer. So we have that in common, not the West Point part by all means, but let's not get that mixed up. But you are from the great West Point. You served 23 years on active duty. You had four combat tours. You've been in charge of over a thousand soldiers, joint task force, and the Dean of the engineer school. Overall, you now have moved into the role of CEO of VetCorps and Team VetCorps. The big piece for what you're doing now is you're on a mission to create sustainable and meaningful employment opportunities and now business opportunities for your nation's heroes, for our nation's heroes. And you're creating those business opportunities through uh, franchising where you've now moved into that realm. So I think in the scale and capacity you're working, it'd be really exciting to kind of see how you've grown in this transition. But before we dive into that part of the conversation, I'd love to know what's like a fun fact about you that we might not know. So I like challenges and I believe that really growth happens outside of your comfort zone. So a little less than a year ago, I started cycling, road cycling. And like a a month later, I did my first triathlon and a bunch of my West Point classmates, several of them are, are, are really good, like Ironman triathlons. And so I signed up for, for, to do my first half Ironman triathlon coming up in May, living way outside of my comfort zone. I've done a couple of, I've done three now, 100 mile bike rides. I just did one last weekend called the Horrible 100. It was a 4,600 feet elevation change over 100 miles. So yeah, I, no, anybody from my past who knows me would never figure that, that was something I would. You say that, but all the West Pointers I've known over my years in the military, y'all are crazy. And I don't know what it is about y'all, but y'all are like born and bred to run really far distances and do really, really silly things. What's chasing you on that bike for a hundred miles? Like, why are you riding so dang far? You know, it's a challenge. It's all about challenges. I really, truly believe that growth happens outside your comfort zone for just about anybody. And to take on something that you're not familiar with and, and then try and get good at it. And, you know, by doing that, it just continues to help stretch us physically, intellectually, emotionally, you name it, and give it a shot. And we're not afraid. So, you know, we check our egos at the door. So we're going to try something new. Probably not good at it. Perhaps we can get good at it. So here we go. <laughs> Man, I think that's a big thing that you've learned over 
over your journey where, and a lot of people not, might not know this about West Point, and I, I joked about it, but being born and bred, like to go to West Point, I mean, that is really a, a very big deal in the military world. But as far as universities go, it's a pretty big task to get into West Point and then obviously commission out of West Point. And there's a lot that goes towards that. We're starting all the way back, middle school, high school, somewhere way back in your teen years. You really had to gear up towards that move into being an, an army officer. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Like how'd that leadership journey start? Where was that desire initially yeah. to go that route? It was not. It was not there. I'm pretty sure I got profiled. I was at a college fair when I was a sophomore in high school. I was a good student and I was a good athlete. And I'm palling around and I was kind of the leader of the bunch. I'm palling around with I don't know, four or five of my high school buddies walking around a college career fair at Kent State University. I'm from Akron, Ohio. And there was a guy there who, army officer, who was running a booth for West Point. And he picks me out of the crowd as we're walking by and says, hey, did you ever think about West Point? I said, no, no, sir. Said, you know, my dad was a construction, owned a construction company and I was going to be a civil engineer. I figured if I went and got a four-year degree in civil engineering and then came back and worked with my dad, you know, be a way to kind of business wouldn't, wasn't handed to me. It would be a way to enhance the business. And he goes, did you know that West Point was the first civil engineering school in the United States? I knew nothing about West Point. And my dad served in World War II, but that was about it. And I stopped and I went back <laughs> and then he starts talking to me and I was just listening. And then he hands me, you know, the brochure about West Point and X percent are, you know, valedictorians, X percent are varsity letter winners, X percent of the class are you know, team captains of their high school sports and I'm like, holy crap, that's me. And imagine going to a place like that where you're surrounded by people who are just going to challenge one another. And, you know, so it kind of circles back to the wanting to challenge yourself. And that was really it. And then that, you know, I mailed the postcard in and started getting bombarded with propaganda. So pretty much you pricked your finger, made you sign in blood, then and there, had the contract rolled out. We know how those recruiters yeah. are, man. They hustle, you know? That's right. And I said... You know, that one decision, my son just, he, he graduated from Florida State about a year ago, and he's very extroverted, as am I, and I like to have fun, and certainly back then, uh, I like to chase girls and all that stuff, and I said, that one decision of me getting on the conveyor belt, known as West Point, and getting off four years later with a ton of people making sure that I stayed on the conveyor belt was entirely different college experience than my son had going to Florida State, and I was envious <laughs> Wow, you have a whole lot more fun than I did. Yeah, I was about to say, Florida State's like one of those top party schools. Uh, I would say West Point is not. West Point is not the party school, yeah. not at all. Man, I love that. And it's one of those where obviously your experience was very different and it geared you and prepped you to join the military in a very high capacity where you immediately, as you commission, you pretty much go directly into a leadership role because you're, you're being trained for that during your college years in a very different capacity, like you said. What was that first role in the military as a second lieutenant? What, were you able to grab a platoon pretty early? Obviously, you had those deployments. What did that journey look like in the early years? Well, so I, I really started getting into it. I, originally, when I went to West Point, I thought five years and I'm out. I'm coming back to Ohio and running a construction company. But I really started getting into the Army stuff. I was going through it. And the summer before my senior year, I got to go on this thing called you know, CTLT, Cadet Troop Leader Training, where they send you out to be a platoon leader for a year. And I was torn between infantry, believe it or not, because I really liked the, the military stuff, and engineers. 
So I did as a platoon, I did a stint as an infantry platoon leader and I got to pick where I wanted to go based on your class rank. I was high enough to get to go where I wanted to go. So I went to Hawaii and I thought, I'm summer before my senior year, I'm going to Hawaii. Well, two days after I get to Hawaii, I deploy with a 25th ID as a platoon leader to Operation Cobra Gold for six weeks in the jungles of Thailand, which was amazing. My platoon didn't have a lieutenant. It had an E7. So the E7 kind of stood back and let me take charge. And the E6 platoon sergeant was Hawaii's best ranger. <laughs> so I learned from the seasoned E7, who was a platoon leader, and E6 best ranger for 25th ID, six weeks doing live fire in the jungles of Thailand, you name it, air assaults, all this kind of stuff. So that really set me up for success. Then I go to, I got, I was uh, graduated high enough to get my, where I wanted to go and what my branch was. So I, I decided to go engineers, but I, I went to an airborne unit at Fort Bragg. And I, I figured that was kind of the best of both worlds. And I got there and my unit was deployed in Desert Storm. And then I got to Desert Storm and I met them in Desert Storm and they had frozen all the platoon leaders in place. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This is a big game. I'm sitting on the bench. You know, I'm a varsity athlete here. Come on. And that was really, really kind of depressing. Not from like a warmonger perspective, but from, a, hey, I'm ready. This was what I was trained to do. And so I, I kind of got assigned as an assistant XO through Desert Storm. I didn't take any leave right after graduation. I went right, or after a graduating basic course. I went right there because I knew they were deployed in Saudi and, and, you know, Desert Storm is about to kick off. And first lieutenant to the new unit, they're all frozen in place. So that was a bummer. But then, you know, after that, I got assigned as a platoon leader. I, I got a lot of green tab time after that, jumping out of airplanes at Fort Bragg and doing stuff. And then more green tab time. I was an executive officer of a, of a company and then went to a mech company and was a company commander for two years. And so I just, I soaked all in. I love, and I was fortunate enough. I think this is, a, you know, has a lot to do with how I was groomed. I was fortunate enough to have a lot of great non-commissioned officers along the way who kind of shaped me into the leader and, and hopefully destroyed all those stigmas about West Point as <laughs> a, a young leader. You know, it, it's funny talking about being an extra lieutenant. When I went to Afghanistan, I had a platoon, but I had an engineer that was an extra lieutenant under me. He was a second lieutenant, a little bit junior to me. I, mean, I just am the one that happened to be the infantry guy with the infantry platoon and he got attached to us. And, you know, it, it's funny. People always talk about like an E4 specialist being the best job in the military because you get away with everything You're like in that range. Right. I think it's being a second lieutenant was the best yes. role, especially yes. as the platoon leader. I got away with everything where I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I had no clue. Right. And just plead ignorance right. to my fun. But as an extra lieutenant, that kid, and I'm, I'm willing to bet you were the same way, got away with everything, uh, yeah. like all the power, <laughs> none of the responsibility. I'm like, you son of a, and he just had a blast over there. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting learning opportunity where you can get away with a lot, but you also, I think in entrepreneurship, it, it kind of highlights this transition of where like in the early days, you take big risks, you try to get away with a lot of stuff and it pays off really well in the long run. Yeah. And, you know, we learned, so uh, you know, good rules for lieutenants and being young leaders, be brave, bold, cool, and courageous. But while we're doing all that, we actually learn risk management. And we learn risk management from a whole different perspective. When you talk about risk management, people think about, you know, they say, oh, military guys understand risk management because they're, you know, they're risking their life 
limb in my sight, jumping out of airplanes, all that kind of stuff. But, okay, yeah, that's true. But what we really learn is the process of risk management. Because when you were a second lieutenant and you had to run a rifle range and you had to do a risk management worksheet and you had to understand there are two components of risk, the probability of risk and the severity of risk, identify risk mitigating measures, make sure the controls are in place, evaluate whether the controls are in place, evaluate the residual risk. You start talking to people about that and, and their head starts spinning in the civilian world because they just nobody approaches risk like that. And frankly, in risk management, that means insurance in the civilian world. I work in the insurance industry, you know, with preferred vendor and, and what we do is a restoration company. In risk management professionals don't understand risk like we did is is and also it's a leadership laboratory, right? It's up or out, but you're incentivized to learn and develop yourself as a leader in the military, which is why we produce some pretty darn good citizens as well. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, and I love that you highlight the risk management because it's funny. In my first business that I started, it was a security firm where I do risk management, but obviously more of like the military side of risk management, not the insurance side and more of uh, assessing different environments for safety and security. And I definitely took lessons from the infantry world into that business where I was able to do like you're talking about running a rifle range. I mean, you learn mitigation in a lot of ways. Looking at your transition after 23 years in the military into what you now own as VetCore, the CEO of VetCore, talk to us a little bit about that transition. Tell us about VetCore, but also what that transition was like into that realm out of the military. It was hard and it sucked. And as I say that, most you're smiling because almost every veteran has experienced this. It's terrible. It is like an awful, awful transition. Like there's no better way to put it. I went through six months where I couldn't find a job. I was batting O for 40 on app job applications. You know, I commanded a thousand soldier and airman joint task force. I'm a West Point grad. I have a master's in engineering, I'm a licensed professional engineer. And I felt like saying, you know, don't you people know who I am? <laughs> You know? And the answer is no, and nor do they care, right? And then I'm like, oh my God, then if I'm having this problem, what about these youngsters who were, you know, the typical person who enlists, right? Gets this enormous responsibility, probably makes it to at least E5, so sergeant, and they have this enormous responsibility compared to their peer group, right? And they get out, and I, I literally, I ran into, I was having dinner one night, I had my vet core shirt on, and I ran into the guy who was valeting cars. He's like, what's VetCorps? And he's like, I'm a veteran. He goes, this is all I can find because people just didn't understand it. And I have a whole presentation I do because I studied this because I for six months, I couldn't find a job. And I studied this to try and find out what was going on and why. Meanwhile, I was networking like a mad fool. And so now I have this incredibly robust personal network that I use to help other veterans but it was difficult. It was really hard. And as a result, now I just try and pay it forward, even so much so that now that's that's what our mission of our company is as well. So I happened to get found by a guy named David Howard. David is now my business partner, but at the time was the CEO and literally just founded VetCore, you know, filed the articles of incorporation. That was it. And David had been an army officer for five years and then spent 25 in the insurance industry and was the CEO of a forensics engineering company, did cause and origin loss investigations for sinkholes in Florida. And their revenue started waning. So David had gotten hired to, to start to um, run this company and also look for other ways to find value and earn revenue from insurance carriers who were their clients. 
And it turns out, I knew nothing about this, restoration is a, is a great way. It's recession proof, it's pandemic proof now. People are always having water damage, fire damage. In Florida, you know, exposed to hurricanes, but it's mostly stuff like dishwashers, ice makers, hot water heaters, kitchen fires, you name it. We also mold, do mold remediation, those, those kinds of things. And it, and it happens reoccurringly. And so David had the idea to start this company. And because he was a vet and understood that, he also wanted to do something to help veterans. And at the time, veteran unemployment was really high. And so to this, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, like many are. Our courses collided. David was the first C-suite level guy that actually knew what my resume meant because he had served in the military. And then, you know, we met and as they say, the, the rest is history, pretty cool history. But just, it was frustrating up until that time where I, at, until I had the good fortune of meeting David Howe. And an interesting part that I wrote down as I'm taking notes listening, and it's something that my military career ended short because of an injury from Afghanistan, of nerve damage. Uh, you know, once you get certain things beat up about life, they kind of boot you out and you lose that identity, right? And that's yes. a transition piece that I was a police officer. I did it all backwards. I mentioned OCS. I was a police officer here in Atlanta first and then went in through like I did the whole, you know, basic training in OCS and to infantry school and never thought I would have the identity crisis until the uniform was forcibly removed. Right. Like I, there's no longer an option. And a big piece that I already had a professional career where I could translate a lot of my experience into the civilian terminology, if you will. Right. But I feel like that's a huge struggle for a lot of my soldiers is they're, you know, coming back from Afghanistan, you're 19, 20 years old, and they're like trying to find a job. They don't know how to translate into like, this is what I did as a E5 in the, in Afghanistan and the, the team management, the, man, the supervision, all those skills that most, like you said, 20 year olds don't have. How have you helped veterans in that? Like, what was your, there's gotta be a key there, right? After, oh, after. Yeah years of success for you. I mean, and you jumped in, I mean, you, you did this transition in your mid forties. So we're talking about 20 year old has no fucking clue. Yep. Excuse the language. Y'all sorry. No freaking clue. I get passionate about this piece because so That's many people don't so get true. that piece. It's so frustrating. So what was that key to success for you in translating that? So that's where my passion lies. And that's where really VetCorps lives and thrives. And because we're doing well, as a result, I get to go out and I, I do a lot of speaking about veterans, the value of veterans, to fellow business owners. In the course of doing that, you know, I'll put plugs in and really that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm living our mission of creating meaningful, sustainable employment opportunities, helping our and now business ownership opportunities and helping our veterans transition. By doing so, we're, we just tell stories, right? So you ever see the movie, The Incredibles, you know, the, the cartoon, and, and there's that one guy and he goes, woman, where is my super suit? And he's looking for, you know, cause he's going to put the suit back on because it was his identity. And I'm like, that was our identity. And in many ways, you know, you get your name tags, U.S. Army or whatever service branch, but also, you know, I was master parachutist, pathfinder, sapper leader, all these wolf badges on and stuff. And I felt like that was my super suit. And most of us feel that way because it's our identity. So when you take that off, not only do you lose your super suit, but you lose, potentially lose your identity. And there's a whole presentation I do about understanding the why, but much of it has to do with we're at a point in time in our nation's history where less than half a percent of the population actively serve in the U.S. military. And only about 
7% total of the population have ever served are veterans, right? And that number of veterans is declining and declining and declining because the active force is so small. So that's great news because we're the most powerful nation on the face of the earth with the most strongest, most powerful military that's ever on the planet. And we're doing it with the least amount of our national treasure at risk. But what it means is fewer and fewer people know you, Zach, and me, Paul, and what that really means. So they think that, you know, you're a knuckle dragger, that if you were in the army, you drove tanks, you know, you're an infantry. If you're in the Air Force, you're a jet pilot, flew C-130s of your Navy, you're a SEAL, subdriver, ship driver, Marine, you're a grunt. And so not only were those people, not just those things, particularly as you grow and you learn all this leadership and management skills, but also, you know, there's 75% of the military had nothing to do with combat. They're the tail in the tooth to tail ratio. And it takes postal workers, you know, it takes nurses, it takes doctors, engineers, cooks in the military. All those are relatively translatable skills and they are still having trouble because of all of this identity stuff. So the whole bunch of reasons why, much of it is because we've grown apart from our society and that's very risky for our society and for us. One of the reasons why I like to come on here and other podcasts and around, frankly, the country and talk about these things. Because look, hopefully I don't look like a military guy. I got, you know, neatly shaven beard. I've let my hair grow out a little bit. I'm still in, in pretty decent shape. But I try and, you know, destroy all the stigmas about former military and say, look, I'm the CEO of a successful company now. I can do it. And there's really nothing different than about me than there is about you, Zach, or other former leaders in the military. We can do this and stop kind of putting us in a corner. The two most common words associated with a veteran are homeless and disabled. And that's bullshit, excuse my French, right? Because we are very capable and it's time for us to tell a different story about veterans. And that's why I'm so willing to do that. But I have my own personal challenges, brother. (laughs) Yeah. And my journey, I mean, it ended, we're talking six months ago that all this happened. So I literally had this go this year where I discovered the nerve damage because it had gotten so significant that I had to have surgery on my arm. So like, it is one of those things that like that transition piece, I think people can't, it's like one of those very, very difficult things to relate. And I think like the closest thing in civilian terms is like a stay-at-home mom that all of a sudden everybody graduates out of the house and it's like empty nester syndrome. Like for 18 years, you're a mom. That's what you did. And you don't, right. you know, going back into the workforce after 18 years, you you lose that type of translatability. And, and to me, that's like the best way to translate it. And it's such a difficult thing when, and I think this is a huge piece of where veterans struggle internally is a lot of us are, we have the ego attached to not wanting to get help, right? Yeah. Well, here's the other piece. And, and this, I think you'll relate to this. And when I talk about this from a different perspective, people go, aha, right? So whether you were an enlisted person, and let's say you graduate from high school and from 18 years on, you enlist in the military, and you spend one tour or say four or five years of your enlistment, right? And then you get out. So you're from 18 to 23, and then you exit out at 23. Whether you're like me, 18, went to West Point, you know, 27 years later, four years at West Point, 23 on active duty, 27 years later, I get out. Either way, we both entered, both those people entered the service at 18. So how did we learn how to be an adult based on the cultures, norms, and values of the U.S. military? which I'm not trying to make a statement, but it is distinctly different than the rest of society. 
and I'm not trying to say we're better because we're not, we just made different choices, right? But let's be honest, there is no I in team in the military, right? And so when you get out, whether you're 23 or after 27 years of service, the way you learn how to be an adult, you didn't learn how to sell yourself because there, you weren't allowed to do that. We had a term for that, right? The spotlight ranger. And if you did that, some big bad sergeant major would come out and you know give you the knife hand and go, there is no I in team. You know, don't what do you smack you upside the head, et cetera. Because it's culturally, it was just different. So now you go, you're out and you're transitioning and you're supposed to create a resume, which is, you know, one page front and back, tell somebody how great you are so that they'll hire you for intellectually honest. And then if you have an interview, what's that? You know, 15, 20 minutes for you in person to tell somebody how great you are so that they'll hire you. Again, if we're intellectually honest, that's what the system is asking us to do. But you get these veterans who are like mortified. Like, I, I can't tell somebody how great I am because that's not how we do things. It's about the team. And so when I talk to business owners about that, they're like, well, yeah, but that's what we want. We want, you know, we want servant leaders. We want good team players. But the problem is the way this system is set up to hire them, it's a resume, one page front and back, right? And an interview. So now is there any, any reason why you wouldn't think that we wouldn't suck at creating resumes in interviews because we're not groomed that way? So it takes folks like us to kind of get out there and explain that and also help veterans see themselves and go, okay, I've got to get better at that because I probably suck at resumes and interviews. And if I want to, if I want to transition, if I've got to see myself better and I have to represent myself, my skill sets, et cetera, because nobody else is going to do it, right? And then we also help the, the business leaders out there understand the veterans because they have no reason to do that, right? If the population is 7% veterans, they don't have to go after those 7%, right? They'll say they honor you, they thank you for their service, they revere you, they want to help you, but they have no reason. They're not incentivized to. So we've got to actively go out and represent ourselves. And I, I think that's such a difficult thing to do for a lot of people because you're right. It's just really hard for us to talk about ourselves in that capacity. And, and that's one reason I love having veterans on here, especially that have scaled to the level you have where I want to highlight what you've done with VetCore a little bit more where it's not that you own a business that you're CEO of a business. It's that you're CEO of a business that is now franchising and you're even teaching and talking. And after your years at the engineer school where you're the dean, I mean, it makes sense that you're now sharing those lessons, but you're now franchising outside of just one singular location. Tell us a little bit about the scale of what you're building it to and maybe some of the lessons of the, the high-level management lessons you had from the Army into now scaling how that looks in, in an overall franchised opportunity. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So, you know, VetCore in its essence is a for-profit restoration company. We help solve water mold-related challenges in commercial and residential properties, right? And so it's science, but it's not rocket science. So I tell people it's a great fit for veterans to get into as a sustainable career because they can grow there's a bunch of training, but it's training certifications and their national certifications, as opposed to like when I was at the engineer school, skilled trades, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, all those are require, you know, an apprenticeship or a license. And those licenses are granted by states. And it's just really, it's a state's rights kind of thing. And so when you could be a 20 year veteran in the military and be a construction supervisor, and when you get out, you don't have a credential as an apprentice because you moved to a state that didn't recognize your credential, right? So that, that's a challenge. But what happens now is two years ago, we started franchising 
And a year and a half before we started franchising, I started studying franchising. I went to the International Franchise Association Conference. I started networking with people. And now it's to the point where I, I'm now a certified franchise executive. I went through that program to understand. And as I understood it and listened and just tried to figure out what it would take to franchise the company, franchising in its, in its essence, I believe, is all about training, standardizing, and replicating. So it's training, standardizing, and replicating locating a concept. In our case, it's the VetCore concept for restoration, the brand known for timely, quality, reliable service. And so now, as I thought about it, we're a preferred vendor with over 60 insurance companies and eight third-party administrators. And I asked them about what they thought about you know, our concept. And you know, I said, I've, I've studied franchising. It's all about training, standardizing, replicating. Do you know any institutions that have a good reputation at training, standardizing, and replicating like the U.S. military, right? So as I thought about that and we moved into – so now I still own a restoration company. I own essentially the Tampa, Florida franchise of that, which is the kind of the jewel of, of the empire. But now we're really a franchising company. So it's all about training, standardizing, and replicating. And we are almost 100% veterans. We have a, just a few handful of non-veterans. We have a, a military spouse of active duty. We have a military spouse of a wounded warrior. And we have, I think, one, one or two technicians that are not military veterans. But otherwise, everybody else knows how to train, standardize, and replicate. And that is amazing. And what we've been able to do is help people understand all the values of military service and the recipes for success that come with that service, translate that into becoming a successful business owner. And I absolutely love that piece of it because veteran success is just one of those. I mean, we have the discipline, the grit, the determination, like all the characteristics you want as an entrepreneur that without the standard construct of a boss telling you this is what you got to do today, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that fail in that capacity because they're not used to that. But in that same breath, there are also, I'd imagine, there's not always been rainbows and sunshines attached to your journey. Is there something in business right now that you're learning new or that's a struggle or something you're overcoming right now as you're optimizing and scaling? Yeah. And so let me address one thing you said first. You know, Veterans are really good at franchising. And statistically, all it shows, right? And, and that's why I'm passionate about that. But people think it's because, well, you know, they, they're good at following orders. Okay, right? But we understand mission type orders, task and purpose. So we can take an SOP. We can take commander's intent with purpose, key tasks, end state, right? And we can make it better. Veterans are really good at running with intent, kind of here's the left and right limits, and then executing violently a concept and making it better and then sharing those lessons learned across an enterprise, right? And that's really what franchising in its essence is. And so, you know, you ask, we're learning a ton of lessons because we have 11 units now, soon be 13, getting ready to award a couple more. And we're lifelong learners and grew up lifelong learners in the military. You know, I spent essentially a year out of my career with the Command and General Staff College. Name another institution in the world where they can take a mid-level manager out of their career for a year and invest in their higher education. Nobody can because you, you don't have that overhead, the ability to do that. But the military does. So we've invested in that. And so as we're an emerging franchise, or we're learning lessons every day about what we can do better. And we're eager to learn those lessons. We have no ego. We check it at the door. And we are always doing after action. 
interviews, right? What happened? Why did it happen? And how we can improve? It's another recipe for success. And when I give these talks to business leaders, they're like, hey, well, what did you just say? What happened? Why it happened? How we can improve? Imagine if you had a culture where every day you came to work and you just continue to get better because you asked yourself those questions. And so, you know, organizationally, process-wise, with 11 franchisees, we realized we were technically oriented to help them succeed because they didn't know shit about restoration, but we weren't as kind of oriented to help them succeed as small business owners. So we're reorienting. We had a concept where we had regional field managers. We had two retired E7s, one Marine Gunny, one chemical NCO from the Army, and they were regional field managers, technically excellent at what they do because they had worked for us in the past. And they were there to help the franchisees, you know, be technical experts at water damage, fire damage, et cetera. Well, what we realized is our training was so good, they didn't really need that as much help once they got started with the technical expertise. What they needed was help with understanding insurance, marketing, and financial reports, and all that kind of stuff, more from the business coach. So what we did is we spin that around. We kind of change organization structurally in flight. And now we were reorganizing to create franchise business coaches. And I have a, one of my former officers who worked for me in my battalion who got out as young captain and worked for Fortune 500 companies, has an understanding. And so now we're creating franchise business coaches still with technical reachback assistance, but we're making that change, kind of building the aircraft in flight. And we're just used to doing that. You iterate, fail fast, iterate and get better. And that's something I love about veterans. I mean, we're great at the adaptability and flexibility attached to creating different aspects of business. And I absolutely love everything you're putting out there with the great work with VetCorps and, and how you're building that brand. And I'm really curious, Paul, what's the legacy you want to leave on the world from everything from the military service all the way to what you're doing with VetCorps? Yeah. So our vision, and it's my job to craft the vision and explain the vision our vision is to become the premier private employer of veterans through our franchise system in the United States. And I believe that we can do that and, and also become the brand known for timely, quality, reliable service and the value of veterans. So I mentioned, you know, 7% of the country is veterans. That's a declining number. Well, imagine as we stand up this brand and this service organization called VetCorp, and it's right now it's service and restoration, but it could be service and other things as we grow as well that helps mitigate and close that gap because Mrs. Johnson, who just had her dishwasher explode, has never had a, you know, a veteran in her family or anything, just needs some help. And next thing you know, she calls her insurance company, insurance company or her vet court. We, we call her up and say, what time would you like us there? She says, eight o'clock. Guess what? We say we'll be there at eight o'clock because we don't give time windows. We give times. I don't understand companies that do that. It's a failure to command and control small unit level operations, right? I mean, think about the last time you had a service call of any kind. When are they going to show up? Oh, eight to 12. And then they show up at 1.30 and don't call in advance. What I tell people is for veterans, on time is late and early is on time. And they get that, right? So what we're trying to build and what our vision is, create this brand known for timely, quality, reliable service and the value of veterans and become the premier private employer through our franchise system, veterans in the United States. And I believe we can do both of those things. And then when we do that, our franchisees and our teammates are part of something bigger than themselves, right? Because you, you talk about, I want veterans to have the opportunity to build wealth in their life. 
right? But most veterans aren't going to just try and secure a business opportunity where they're into making as much money as possible. They feel dirty. It's not right, right? They don't exist to earn money. But if you exist to help fellow veterans and to build this legacy and a brand that associates with your service and your legacy, and you can make money, you can monetize that. That's win, win, win. And oh, by the way, you're helping people in their time of need and you're helping keep their insurance premiums down because you're doing it, you're making a reasonable profit, but you're not scamming them like a lot of other restoration companies are. That's win, win, win. And it's great opportunities for veterans. So that's what we're trying to do and create enough irreversible momentum that we can't turn back. It, it And we're darn close to creating that irreversible momentum. Such a great legacy and such a great mission that you're building, Paul, and absolutely love and respect it. And I want to give the audience an opportunity. If they want to reach out, follow the mission or contact you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Sure. So in our website, www.vetcor, V-E-T-C-O-R, services.com, there's information there about our company as well as franchise opportunities. They can find me personally. I'm very active on LinkedIn and Facebook. Paul Hussar, H-U-S-Z-A-R. I'm one of very few on both platforms. So you can find me there. You know, when I started LinkedIn, for example, it, that's probably the best place for transitioning service members because I connect with any any veteran, veteran family member or business owner who wants to be a veteran advocate. You just shoot me a note or if I see veteran in your profile, I automatically connect. Because when I was looking for help, you know, I had and I started my LinkedIn profile, zero contacts. It's upward of something like 6,000 now because it's amazing how many people would connect with the CEO instead of the you know, lowly transitioning colonel from the Army. But I try and use that for good and then help connect other veterans to that platform and be an advocate on those platforms. I love it. I definitely encourage everybody out there to reach out, connect with Paul, but especially those veterans listening, reach out. This is such a great mission to be a part of and, and to watch it grow. And I want to encourage everybody to come back this Friday, of course, for Tactical Friday. Paul's going to break this down a little bit more into action steps for us. And overall, Paul, I appreciate your time and your wisdom today, my friend. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate what you're doing, too. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast. And I hope you got a ton of value out of what we talked about today. I also want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Night Protection Services. If you're a leader in a small to mid-sized business that does 5 to $10 million a year in revenue, and want to improve retention costs, which could actually add up to being twice your employee's salary, all through creating a safer work environment and saving up to 25% in insurance costs, be sure to visit nightprotectionllc.com.